and Beside LMCs, the professional voice of general practice. Hello and welcome to the Humberside LMC's podcast. It's the first of a new run of podcasts created to provide content for GPs and practice staff in the Humber region, which is Hull, East Riding of Yorkshire, North Lincolnshire, North East Lincolnshire. I'm Jonathan Appleton, Communications Manager at the LMC, and with me is Dr Zoe Norris. Welcome, Zoe. Hello. And if, if you'd just like to introduce yourself, Zoe, say what you do. Yeah, so my name's uh, my name's Zoe Norris. I'm a GP. Um, I am the medical director at Humberside LMC. So I spend um, roughly half my week doing this job, um, and then the rest of the time I am a portfolio GP, uh, locoming across Hull and the East Riding. I do a little bit of teaching. I do a bit of um, appraisal work, um, and have an interest in medical politics. Okay, thank you, Zoe. Um, so today, in this first edition, we've titled it Demystifying General Practice and we've picked a few topics which we particularly felt would be uh, of interest to new GPs um, but not exclusively. Um, so things you may be unsure about, things that you maybe you, you hear about but you wonder wonder what, what that's about, you'd like more information. So um, without further ado we're going to crack straight on and the first one we've picked out is an overview of funding. How does funding for general practice work? No pressure, Zoe. <laughs> I, well, I think that's uh, that's the first thing, isn't it? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could fit that into a podcast? Um, so funding for general practice is just an absolute, um, it's a bit like you've, you've made uh, a new outfit using lots of scraps of old outfits and sewn them all together and hoped that it covers everything it needs to. Um, the, the funding mechanism for general practice was first put in place when the NHS was originally um, formed. And uh, like a lot of funding arrangements that are that old, there hasn't been a full overhaul since. What there have been is lots of boltons, lots of patches, lots of added bits um, and recognition over a number of years that the funding that one GP practice gets, for example, if they are a university GP practice and they serve a predominantly young population, maybe with lots of mental health problems, maybe with um, lots of orthopaedic problems, that that is going to be wildly different to a um, inner city uh, practice with a big population of elderly patients, with lots of polypharmacy, lots of multimorbidity, and that both practices are going to need um, a different arrangement. So over the years, uh, there have been lots and lots of changes to try and address that. So um, the first thing is that practices are funded slightly differently depending on the contract they hold with NHS England. So there are three main contracts, GMS, PMS and APMS. Um, and each of those has slightly different requirements on it. And um, GMS is the original contract, General Medical Services. Um, PMS was then introduced as the slightly more flexible version of that, so personal medical services. Um, and at the time it was introduced, the idea was that um, there would be more funding if practices were working more flexibly. So there was a big difference between the income for a GMS and a PMS practice for a number of years. Um, they then introduced APMS contracts. 
um, which are increasingly used for um, big companies, private providers, uh, where a practice is struggling to, um, to get their contract taken over. One of the big differences between those three is that a GMS contract, you can't, um, you can't end a GMS contract unless you hand it back to NHS England. Whereas an APMS contract, the newer sort, can be time limited. So if you were a new partner coming into a partnership, really important to understand which contract you're signing up for. Um, and important to understand that over the years, because there was a big difference in the funding between those different contracts, um, that that has gradually been reduced. So um, over a number of years, what we started to see is the difference, particularly between G GMS and uh, PMS contracts, has then been reduced down. And you've then got additional factors uh, such as um, the Carhill formula, which sounds like some sort of uh, chemical equation that we should have learned uh, at GCSE, um, which aims to increase funding to those practices that work in areas of deprivation. Um, and then also something called the MPIG, uh, which I, I mean, I don't even know where to start with that, but that's the minimum practice income guarantee. Uh, and that is sort of a, a, a safety net, a baseline, if you like, that even though certain things will go up and down for each practice on an annual basis, that there's always that safety net, that minimum guarantee um, that if other bits are tinkered with in the contract that affect income, that the practice still has that as a baseline. Um, so, I mean, you know, as I'm saying it, I'm already thinking, oh my God, my brain's hurting and I, and I know a bit more about this. I, I think the main thing is, it is well worth, if you're new to partnership, taking a little bit of time to do a little bit of reading about these things. There's some really good, um, good videos, particularly on the King's Fund website, um, about how funding for general practice works. Um, and on top of all those basic things, you've also then got the sort of payment by result system of QOF, um, the quality and outcomes framework, which looks at certain clinical things that a practice achieves and gives them extra money for that. Um, and then, of course, we've now got the primary care networks arrangement um, for England, which oh, I'm going to stop there, Jonathan, because mm. otherwise I think yeah, I no. might explode. No, we're well done. I mean, it's it's plainly a minefield, as you say, and, and there's some good suggestions there in terms of um, further resources and so on that people should look to, because um, it, it's plainly a, a, an absolute minefield of um, complexity, really. But but thank you for, for that one. Um, you mentioned PCNs, um, primary care networks, which nicely leads us on um, to talk about those for, for a moment. Um, so PCNs introduced, I think, early last year. Um, feels like longer ago than it is, really. But um, <laughs> just give us a, a, a quick, a quick overview of where PCNs come from, um, how we're doing with PCNs, what, what they, what they're there for. Uh, so I'm going to carry on with my clothing analogy, just because it's evolving in my brain as we talk. Um, so your your core contract regardless of what type it is, uh, is, is maybe your coat. And then there are add-on contracts that a practice can sign up to, to get extra funding or to provide extra services. So think of those as your gloves and your welly boots. Um, and there are a number of different ones of these. Some of these are local enhanced services. So that might be in a particular area, maybe um, maybe there's a need to have a, a service for warfarin provided for patients that, that isn't done at the hospital anymore. So that might be offered to GP practices in the area as a local enhanced service. Uh, and that's a LES for short. 
The PCN bit is a direct enhanced service or a DES. So you might hear people talking about leses and deses. Um, so a DES is a national add-on. It's a national enhanced service all across England. And we are talking today about GP contracting arrangements in England, not in the devolved nations. Um, and so the, the PCN, the primary care network, um, participating in one of those, being involved in that, um, ticking the boxes to get the additional funding for that requires practices to sign up individually to a direct enhanced service. So it's an add-on option. You don't have to sign up. However, increasingly what we've seen is that because NHS England and the government want to use primary care networks, and that's where you've got uh, practices working together to cover populations of on average somewhere between 30 and 50,000 patients. Um, so that might be a number of practices within a town working together. It might be one or two larger practices, or it might be a single um, sort of super practice. And they sign up to become a primary care network uh, that covers that population. And then what they do is they deliver additional services. So they are additional services that might be for care homes. They might be for reviewing medication. Um, they're reviewed and decided upon. Well, it should be each year, but obviously COVID has slightly thrown that out the window a little bit. Um, and the aim is that if you are part of a PCN, that you receive some funding to be signed up to one. Uh, and also then you receive access to extra staff. So you can get physiotherapists, you can get um, uh, you can get mental health workers, you can get paramedics, and the wages of those are met by um, funding for the PCN. So individual practices don't have to find the money to pay their wages. Now that sounds amazing, doesn't it? That sounds great. You just get loads of free staff. Um, it's a bit more complex than that because firstly, you've got to recruit those staff uh, and, and have the right people to fill the gaps. And secondly, you've got to share them uh, with everyone else in your PCN. So if you imagine that you have five or six practices in your PCN and you have one paramedic, uh, well, you know, that's not much. That's sort of what, three quarters of a day each per, uh, per practice, which doesn't give you much. So it requires a degree of collaboration. It requires um, management input, you know, practice managers, PCM managers, really important in this. Um, and to get the most out of it, what you what a lot of places are doing is they're using these extra staff to take on that new work to allow their GPs to focus on um, the core stuff, the patients who are more complex, who are more difficult. So. It's a way of funding being put into general practice without it going directly into the core contract, um, directly into what's called the global sum, which is the, the basis of the funding that you receive in that core contract. Um, and also the goalposts are movable as with, as with all contracts like this. So let's say next year that the government decide that diabetes is their main objective, they wanna sort that out. Well, they might put that into the PCN DES. Uh, in order to provide some extra funding, some extra resources, extra people, um, and a focus on that. So uh, yeah, it is a welly boot add-on to your main contract, and that's where the money is currently flowing into. And in terms of just thinking back to when the, when the PCNs were first talked about, first introduced, one of the the hopes for them was that through things like the extra staffing, through practices working together and so on, it would take some of the pressure off um general practice is, is yeah, it's still relatively early days but is, is there reason to be hopeful there or is it has things just been thrown off too much by the whole covid experience 
I, I mean, I think it's a mixed bag. I think one of the main challenges is recruitment. So, you know, it's great being told you can access all these roles. But if you can't recruit people to that, that's a, an issue. And it's particularly an issue for practices that are in a city that are maybe working in a deprived area or that are quite rural and have always struggled to recruit anyway. Um, if you can then recruit those roles, it's great but they still need support. They still need supervision. Um, a lot of uh, you know, pharmacists coming in, the paramedics coming in may never have worked in primary care before. Um, and it's very much like having a, you know, a first year GP trainee. They need support, they need um, education, they need time and induction, um, all the while, while, while still doing the, the core day-to-day -day practice. So um, I think some places have managed to make it work really well. I think those practices that already were in a good position have, have started to fly a bit more now with PCNs. But there are still some PCNs that are very early on um, whose practices weren't working together at all prior to the, the PCN DES, who are still getting established, who are still agreeing priorities, all while trying to prop up a system um, that maybe is still understaffed um, and, and they're struggling. And there's not, you know, I've talked about money going into PCNs it's not a wash with cash. Uh, you know, the money goes in in the staff costs. It's not like you just get a big lump of money that you can spend on anything you want. So um, it, it does present challenges. I think like with a lot of healthcare reforms, the theory is good, yeah. um, but the devil is in the detail. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And in terms of more information about PCNs, I, I know, because I've used it, that the BMA page on PCNs is, is good and updated very regularly. That Any other suggestions on the resources information on PCNs that you know of that you've used yeah I mean there's a lot out there isn't there there's a lot you know the BMA web pages are a good start the NHS England web pages there's quite a lot on there um I'm, I'm again I'm promise I'm not paid by the King's Fund Jonathan but you know their <laughs> um their stuff on PCNs is really yeah. helpful as well and sometimes it's worth even just looking in the GP magazines you know Pulse and GP Online um or the Health Service Journal just to get a bit of an overview um but it's kind of a rabbit hole you can dive into um, and we certainly put quite a lot of information about PCNs on our LMC website, um, which, you know, is always worth checking there first because we, we do try and just keep it to the, the main things you need to know rather than yeah. smothering you in 100 page documents. <laughs> yeah, great stuff. OK, um, so moving swiftly on, um, it's another big topic. Uh, the NHS standard contract we wanted to talk about um, and there's been um, I suppose kind of an amendment to this recently but uh, maybe just explain Zoe what's the NHS standard contract and why why is it important? It seems like a bit of a funny thing to be talking about a hospital contract on a podcast for GPs doesn't it but um, it is important and it's important because of that that core contract that all GP practices hold with NHS England and that contract defines what you have to do and what you don't have to do and what is optional and what is an extra. Um, so, for example, one of the commonest things is um, uh, private work. So if a patient of your practice needed um, a, a medical doing for insurance or to you know, get their lorry license, their HGV license, that is not core work. That is not core NHS work. It's private work. You can charge for it separately. You can choose whether you do it or not. Um, and hospitals have exactly the same kind of thing in their contract. They have a core um, contract, a, a standard hospital contract where NHS England and the government tell them what they have to do for the money that they're given. Um, and there is inevitably some overlap. So, for instance, a lot of the things that traditionally GPs have picked up 
um, actually are in the hospital contract. So some common examples of that would be um, sick notes for patients. If a patient goes to A&E or they are admitted to hospital or they have surgery, then part of the standard hospital contract says that they must be given a sick note if they need one that covers the whole time they're going to be off work. Now, obviously, there's some flexibility in that. You know, sometimes people don't know exactly, but you can have a, a pretty good guess. What shouldn't happen is the patient comes out of hospital and is told, go and get a sick note from your GP. Uh, firstly, because we probably don't know what's going on because it takes a while for letters to get to us. Um, and secondly, the hospitals are paid to do that. That's part of their contract that uses up a GP appointment. It uses up our phone lines or our online access. And there are then other people who can't get through to us as a result. So knowing what the contract says for the hospitals means that actually you can um, you can push back. Um, we know how busy general practice is. We know there's a lot of pressure. If we are being paid to do something in our contract, then we, we get on and do it. And GP practices that don't fulfill their contract really can find themselves in a lot of trouble um, with NHS England. With hospitals, um, the focus tends to be on other things. You know, it tends to be on waiting lists and on operations. Um, so if they don't do a sick note for a patient or they don't give them the medication that they need when they leave hospital um, or they discharge a patient from follow up because they haven't attended an appointment, um, those things tend to get forgotten because they're not perceived as as big a deal for the hospital. But once you add all those up, that is a lot of work. That's a lot of appointments for general practice that we're not paid to do and that actually we don't have time or resources to do. So we answer a lot of queries at the LMC about things like that. Um, and really, the most important thing is to make sure you know what your contract says. Make sure you know what you have to do um, and what you can choose not to do and what you can choose to do and charge a fee for. Um, so we really want to try and support practices in understanding what that contract says for the hospital. So then you're able to um, make sure you can reserve your time for patients and for work that has to be done and that is your job to do um, so it's just about knowing that difference um, and the change that we've seen more recently because the standard contract's been in place since 2017 for hospitals more recently it's been updated to say that ccgs need to monitor that and need to report back um, to their to their boards and to um, patients about the impact that that's having and how much hospitals are sticking to that contract. So that's put another layer in um, and has really spurred people on a little bit to make sure that this is being done. Um, and, you know, it, it would make a huge difference to GPs if that was done all the time, because based on our estimates, we think probably about a quarter of GP demand and appointments every day comes from work that strictly isn't work we should be doing. Wow. I, I didn't I wouldn't have realised it was quite as quite as much as that. But um, yeah. Yeah, that's um, an interesting one. Um, we have published, um, just published uh, uh, an advice sheet on the NHS standard contract, uh, including details of the, the recent changes that, that you mentioned, Zoe. Um, you can find it on our website if you go to the guidance pages and the practice management area within the guidance pages, you, you'll find that on, on the list of, of resources there. Um, right, so that's the standard contract sorted. Um, so we said we'd talk about what help is available. I think we've covered that pretty well so far, but um, just thinking particularly in terms of uh, newer GPs, Zoe, anything else that we've not covered just with reference to these issues we've been talking about that, that people would be well advised to, to check out? 
Um, yeah, I mean, there's often a lot of local groups around, you know, the, the Royal College of GPs, um, if you remember there, have um, first five GP groups all across the country. Um, you know, there's certainly an active one um, in um, Yorkshire and the Humber. Um, there are often, um, increasingly, there's some new fellowship offers um, for people who are newly qualified, you know, first five years after qualification. Um, there are there are offers there. There's also support from the BMA, um, you know, and as we said, their website, it's uh, it's well worth just spending, you know, half an hour, an hour looking through that. They've got some really good resources, particularly to do with workload in the quality first section of the website. Um, and often a lot of newly qualified GPs will um, use social media. There's a lot of GP groups online. Um, they will use Twitter, they'll use WhatsApp, or they'll set up their own groups. Um, and I'm aware that we've got a number of, of colleagues who've qualified fairly recently, or indeed who are new partners at any age, um, who have got some peer support. And that's incredibly helpful because, you know, you, you learn what's normal in your practice, but it's really nice to say, well, well how do you handle this? What do you do? Um, and that's one thing that we, we try and help with at the LMC is we try and connect people. We try and encourage um, different practices to, to share information. Um, and that includes not just GPs, it includes practice managers as well because they're really invaluable to the way the system runs and they're often the ones who are dealing um you know with if there is excess workload how they can support their patients and um, and their gps so um i mean you know obviously we're a little bit biased jonathan so if you're not sure where to get help and support if you need something and you don't know where to look then you get in touch with the lmc that's what we're here for yeah I, I, absolutely yeah I, I would second that we, we do spend a lot of time on our our comms the the newsletter the um the website particularly um it's quite a newish website still that, that we've got so um yeah people should certainly check out the resources and the help available by the website um well thank you for that zoe that's probably um everything we're, we were going to cover today um uh, do check out the website humbersidelmc.org.uk uh, follow us on twitter and facebook and please do tune in for other podcasts very soon Humberside LMCs, the professional voice of general practice.